Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Good evening, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem, to our evening Bible study. We are almost at the end, we actually are at the end of the book of Leviticus, the Holiness Code, a call to the people of God to lead a life that so reflects his character that it invites people to come and join his kingdom. And uh, we've been studying this, wrestling with this, learning some incredible things as we go through the book. Uh, It's a great book. It's not what much of our uh, commentaries or initial thoughts might have thought. Now, we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is present. He binds us all together. He actually makes us a community, um, regardless of where we are. And so we want to acknowledge his presence and acknowledge the the delight that it is to study. And uh, Kate, from sunny Scotland, will lead us in our opening prayer. Dear Lord in heaven, we're here this evening and, and we're hoping tonight to have the most useful possible discussion about the last chapters in Leviticus. And I want to thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together, because through this study, many of us have learned new things. Many of us have developed interest in other things which have taken our our knowledge of you further, Lord. And we know that in studying your word, that we are worshipping you. You know this, Lord. You hear hear our study. You know what's in our heart. And we hope that Um, as we take this forward. It takes us into um, a place where we are following you and we are acting out the word which you are teaching us, that we can make ourselves a light in our own world and spread your light throughout the world. And we ask for your love and kindness to all of the people who are listening in to our prayers and to our, our conversation today. And through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, I say, amen. Amen. Joining you in that one. Thank you. All right. As is our tradition, a summary from our discussions from last week. It was the the last half of Leviticus 26, verses 27 to 46. Moses continues his description of God's response to the continued future rebellion and wickedness of the people of Israel. There is a sense of the prophetic at work here, as the Israelites have yet to leave from the base of Mount Sinai. So these warnings are for the generation that does not yet exist. The Lord does not say that he will forsake his people, only that he will punish them, chastise, quite severely, in ways that we usually might not attribute to the hand of a loving God. Now, Lord Rabbi Sachs comments that these curses can be seen as blessings in that they have the potential to produce confession and repentance. The blessings and punishments in this chapter are corporate in nature. They affect the entire nation, culminating in the exile of Israel. This does not diminish nor take away our individual responsibility. It only acknowledges that we as individuals cannot be disassociated from the communities that we live in. We are called to be part 
of a holy people. We have both an individual and a corporate responsibility, and all of our choices and actions have consequences on both levels. The future destiny of the nation of Israel is not wrapped up in its military might, nor in its future economic power, but in its morality. A good Israel will be a great and prosperous Israel. Israel was and is called to be a holy people and a light to the nations, reflecting the truth, the holiness, the character of the king of the universe to the rest of the world. The question then becomes, can God make you good? Can you choose to be good? Or is goodness completely beyond the frame of man? And this led to a discussion reflecting on the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity is the phrase, the modern phrase, used to describe the theological position that man has the moral inability to do good things as viewed by God. It is a strongly held position uh, by many segments of the church, particularly Calvinists. These questions of predestination, where God's in total control, and free will are held in tension in Hebrew thought. The Dead Sea community actually held the theological position of complete predestination. For them, there was no free will. This is a community that was there a hundred years before Jesus. The concept of you reap what you sow has different implications in a total predestination world. All, this is for them, for the Dead Sea Scrolls, all was ordained by God. Now, in contrast, the majority of Judaism held both positions to be true, that is, predestination and free will. It was both and. The Bible does teach that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. The Jewish position is that the evil inclination existed even before the fall. The evil inclination was found in an angel before it was found in a human. Despite knowing the heart of man and his propensity to wickedness, God places conditions, if-then statements in the Gospels, and he presents choices in the Torah, choose life, being a classic one from Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. A central theme from the Torah is that God is in control. He is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the first cause. He is the one who makes you holy. Spiritual birth is started by God, and then it is continued by us. God makes the Sabbath holy. Now we keep it holy. God's name is holy. Now we keep it holy. God starts the eternal flame on the altar, but he asks the priests to attend it and to keep it burning. There is a cause and effect of what we do as individuals and as communities, churches and nations. Everything has an effect. And if it didn't, then we would be faced with the despair that is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the wise man concluded that all is meaningless. The last verse appears to conclude the book of Leviticus, and yet there remains one more following chapter. The verse affirms the author of the call to holiness, which is the Lord, to the people who are called to holiness, which are the children of Israel, and the location of the calling, which is Mount Sinai. Those redeemed from Egypt, both Jews and Gentiles, the call to holiness, therefore, is a call to all the redeemed of the Lord. 
And that would most definitely include us. All right. So let's read the last chapter, which has a sort of slight, slight nuance. And it's 34 verses. So here we go. Leviticus 27. I'm reading from an ESV. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation will be 30 shekels. If the person is from five years old up to 20 years old, the value shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male will be 15 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest and the priest shall value them and the priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so shall it be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth of its valuation. And when a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so shall it stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth of the valuation of price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land which is possession, and then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley sheet shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. He dedicates his field from the year of jubilee. The valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of jubilee. And a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall be his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. And if he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not part of his possession, and then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee. The man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. And in the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. By the firstborn of animals, such as a firstborn which belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. 
And if it is an unclean animal, then you shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth of it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether it is a man or a beast or his inherited land, shall be sold or redeemed, because every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether it is the seed of the land or it is the fruit of the trees, it is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herbs and flocks, every tenth animal and all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy, and it shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So the last chapter has something a little different. It has a discussion on these free will gifts and vows. Like These are not commanded things. These are things that you want to physically give. But there are rules as to how you handle them and uh, with, the, with the propensity that you can actually buy back uh, something that has actually been given to the Lord up until a point. All right. So. Is there anything there that jumps out at you? Anything a bit strange, perhaps? There's a few things for me, but you guys go first. Go, Vida, hand raise. Well done. I just find it absolutely fascinating that the very last chapter of Leviticus is all about redemption. Yes, it is. I, I just love that. And I think it's, and then you've got all these laws surrounding it. And I, you know me, I can take it all to Christ, but I, I just <laughs> think it's absolutely beautiful. But you, that's one, one level you should. You should always do that. You've got the Peshat, remember, the literal, but then you've always got the higher. So we've got, a, we've got a big talk on redemption, although there are some things you are not allowed to redeem, which is very interesting. We'll talk about perhaps why that might, might be. But um, uh, now the word shekel in Hebrew doesn't mean currency like we understand the word shekel. It comes from the verb leshekel, which means to weigh. So in the, in the, in the ancient uh, past, um money was a weight it wasn't a coin as we understand the words coins that's actually invented by the persians for those that were listening to uh john arnold's sermon on sunday night he uh, made a mention that uh it was our persian friends who invented what we today call modern currency where they created a coin that wasn't based on weight right? and they actually created this value on something that didn't have a value Really quite, really quite ingenious how they did it. And, um, and the Jewish people had been in exile. And they had engaged in idolatry, and this had led to the destruction of the temple. They were now in Babylon, where this new currency, they sort of encounter, and they thrived. They thought it was a great idea. So they became really good businessmen, and they made lots of money. So when it was time to come back to Israel, not a lot of them did, and so only like you know, small handful did. And you find that in the second temple period, what's our what's our problem? It's no longer idolatry; it's greed. 
we've now made lots of money and we kind of like it. But then Paul comes along in Colossians and he makes the link. He says, actually, uh, greed is idolatry. It's just another form. And um, uh, But that seems to be the, the thing that we wrestle with in, in the New Testament. Here, whenever we talk about 50 shekels of silver, it's a weight. It's some, some sort of weight, um, which is 20 geras, and no, no one really knows what that means. Not anymore. Any other comments on the text as it stands? It's a very interesting thing that we actually do finish Leviticus and then have another discussion on, on redemption. Could I ask just one question? Sorry to pipe in. Why is the value between male and female so different? I've always pondered that. So, so I, I also thought this. There's a there are commentaries that give you charts and lists, and they'll you know give you you go okay, what am I trying to learn here? And they they take it in the value of what the person can provide for the sanctuary. Now, remember, these things are dedicated to the temple. Like who who's dedicated to the temple that we we will remember in our Bible? Samuel, right? So th this happened, right? You know, there's Hannah and she prays and she says, I'll dedicate him to you, right? And this was, this was a way, one way, where non-Levites and non-Cohens could actually serve in the temple, right? Samuel is not a Levite. He's an Ephraimite and he is dedicated to the Lord and he grows up in the sanctuary doing things in the sanctuary. Well, he's not allowed to. According to Leviticus, no, 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 no. Only Cohens and Levites can do this. Well, now we've got this other way where actually you can dedicate things to the Lord. They belong to the Lord and they don't have to be Cohens or Levites, right? which is an interesting thought. Um, um, and, uh, and, it's, and humans, humans, um, animals and land can be dedicated to the sanctuary and it creates an economy. The sanctuary has an economy that goes along. And so things can be dedicated to the Lord and then a redeemer can come along and say, actually, we need to buy that back for the family. And so I will pay. And so the sanctuary has a, um, uh, a way of creating an income. This is all free will. Right? There are other stories in the Bible where people do dedications. Uh, some of them rather, rather unfortunate. Um, does anyone know an unfortunate story in the book of Judges about a guy who dedicates something to the Lord? Does anyone remember? His daughter. Yeah. He makes a stupid vow where he says, whatever I see first that comes out of my house, which he probably assumed was his pet dog, um, you know, I shall dedicate that to the Lord. In fact, not only that, he says, I will make it an Allah. I will actually make it as a sacrifice. And it's his girl. And he's like, oh, what have I done? You know, and he realizes I can't take it back. Now, why can't he take it back? We've now we've got rules here that said he could buy back. But there was this one thing, and it's in verse 28, which is the bit I thought myself was quite interesting where it says, in my translation, in verse 28, but no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether it is a man or a beast, right? The book of Judges is being very true to this verse or his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. You can't buy this back because every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. What do other translations have? Or do they all say devoted? Yeah, our new King James, <clears throat> it's devoted. Devoted, devoted, devoted. Okay. Yeah, devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, 
both man and beast or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. Right. And that, that's an interesting word because the word there is cherem, which can mean devoted. But you know what it can also mean? Accursed. Same word. And you go, because because um, in for CMJ or the London Jews Society, um, we had many cherems against us, where uh, when we had the when the Anglican school, to, which is on, on Prophet Street in the city today, when that used to be a hospital, the rabbinical community put out a cherem, which said that anyone who dies in this hospital will not be given a Jewish bur a burial, right? Which is, which is what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to. It's one of the most important mitzvahs ever is to bury the dead. And they created this thing called a harem where they said, no, if they go into that hospital and get medical care from those nasty missionaries, then they're harem, they're a curse. It's actually the same word. Interesting. So that it's, it, it shows you the power of what this guy had done. Like he had said, the very the next thing I see, I can't take it back. It's not mine anymore. And, uh, and, and obviously, he had made a rather foolish statement, but it, it, people could do that. And Leviticus has this, um, this actual verse that actually says, we acknowledge people saying stupid things, and, um, but they're also loving the Lord in their way, right? Okay? And uh, it's a free will to gift. It's not required. It's not a mitzvah. It's not demanded. It's someone saying, I will. And uh, and uh, if if you say it to a certain level, then Leviticus says, "Well, you can't take it back. That's not something you take back." It's like committing a person to slavery in a way, though. You see, if you if you know that God is good, you're committing him to God or them to God. But if it were if you were committing them to anyone else, it would not be deemed to be a good thing because you're giving. You're well, you've giving got two God. types. You've got the one that says, like like the like Hannah, she devotes her son to the temple now the husband he actually could have brought her back brought him back right according to the rules here he could have come back and said look my wife has devoted the son to the tent to the temple according to the rules actually you know i'm wealthy i've got enough money to have a couple of wives here i'm buying him back but actually he didn't he sort of sort of he obviously acknowledged that obviously had some discussions back at home base and uh, and Hannah said, look, no, 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 I, I've actually made a special vow to the Lord. I'll go and see him every single, every single festival, every single feast. Whenever we come and worship, I'm going to see my son again. But, uh, but he's actually the Lord's. And it comes out for good, mostly. Okay, a couple of hands raised. Uh, let's go to London. Teresa. Thank you, Aaron. Um, my verse is um, in the Chumash is translated like this. However, any segregated property that a man will segregate for the sake of Hashem from anything that is his, whether human, animal or field of his ancestral heritage, may not be sold and may not be redeemed. Any okay. segregated item may be most holy to Hashem. And then it says cherem, segregated property. The word cherem is customarily used to note, denote destruction or, some, or something banned from human enjoyment. Um, yeah, and yes. it goes on, but yeah, it, 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 the you that word is also used in judges of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. They are they have been devoted to destruction, 
It's an interesting word that pops up. Uh, but here, it's said in a positive way. It's said that something can be segregated or set apart or what, however you want to, whatever English word we want to use, it's, it's, um, it now belongs 100% solely to God. And usually, it was actually to be destroyed. Right, so it's not—it's not something that you, so you weren't normally talking about a human to the Lord, although you might have been uh, when you're talking about your enemies, because there was one enemy which was supposed to be Cherem, but that wasn't, and caused all kinds of issues. Does anyone know who it is? Amalek. Saul was told to Cherem Amalek. He was told, no, no, no. These are reserved set apart for destruction. I don't want animals left alive. I don't want humans left alive. Amalek disappears from the face of the earth, please. Well, that didn't happen. And then we get it, we end up with this problem that goes on later. And so, you know, um, it, there's these, these, these issues that, that show up. But usually, if it's, if it's talking about a human, um, we're usually talking about enemies. Right, we, we we are going to defeat them, and if we capture them and take them prisoner, we actually have to kill them anyway. We didn't really mean to take them prisoner. Um, they didn't we need to be wiped out, but um, uh, that's uh, something that occurs in the Bible, and we all have to deal with it. <laughs> um, but the the here the word for devoted uh, tends to be um, not. It's got humans in it, but it tends to be more things, and it tends to be more things that are usually destroyed, like. A sacrifice that you burn up for God. You're never going to get it back. Or um, um, or wine. Like you've, you've, you've made the a, a new batch of wine. This is the best bottle that comes from your vineyard. And what you will do is you will come before God and you will deliberately pour it out on his altar. You won't drink it. You'll say, Lord, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. And um, uh, none of us will touch it. That kind of idea. Okay. Um, uh, Vida, you've got a hand raised. It's just a quick question again, Aaron. It's with this devoted thing being a curse or a, a like a vow. Do you think this is what the Lord really meant when He said, "Don't make any vows"? To because the the Lord knows a heart, and if we don't keep that vow perfectly, it becomes a curse. It could be, yeah. Do you think that's what He's implying here with this? Not not a bad thought. It could be. It could be that he's reflecting on this, like guys, I've loved, I've you know been hanging around with you for several thousand years now. You really haven't got this vow thing worked out. Probably shouldn't do it. Um, let's actually go a bit more simpler. Let's just make our yes yes and our no's no's. Let's just be completely honest here with everything. Um, yeah, interesting thought. Hadn't thought about that. That's good. Okay. Uh, Yvonne. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Jericho. How that was devoted to the Lord. Uh, in in the in its in its destruction, but the things right, yeah. And it, wasn't there something? Yeah, and it, you couldn't touch anything. It was all. I thought it was. I know. Of you course, it meant was, to rebuild it after the destruction yeah. of Jericho. No, no, the right. command was don't rebuild it. And anyone who rebuilds it is cherem is a curse. Anathema. Yeah, is um, there's a few things on the planet that that uh, get that kind of way. Um, not normally the way we like to think of things, um, but but it's a, it's part of the story. Um, here, you have um, in the initial uh, verses we see there is a differentiation between males and females, which you know 
grinds us up the wrong way, yeah, in a lot of different levels. Um, but they're actually talking in economic terms, in output. So, you know, a five-year-old just is not going to be able to do as much work around the tabernacle as a 20-year-old. They're just not. And, uh, and so their value was considered a little different. Um, same, same with women. Why? Because one would assume that if you had a woman hanging around the tabernacle, some, some Levite or priest is eventually going to go, gee, she, she's a bit nice. Um, I'm not married or my son's not married. Maybe I should introduce them. And suddenly she's not working for the tabernacle. And, uh, and so there would be this, um, this loss of, uh, of, uh, of economy, economics uh, output. And so they sort of narrowed this window down between, you know, uh, men between the ages of 50, 20 and 50. They're the ones that tend to work the most. Uh, so we'll value them as a weight. That doesn't mean it's not other people aren't valued. Okay? It just means in their economic output, there were differences. Um, what's interesting to me is that poor people can become part of this economic system. And so poor people, just as rich people, can be dedicated to the temple. But if poor people in their redemptive process, like someone comes along to a poor person and said, like a poor family says, look, you know, my son's dedicated himself to the temple. Uh, we think he's really made a dumb decision there. Can we please buy him back? And the priest says, yeah, we get it. No problem. Um, and they don't turn around and go, that's 50 shekels because there's no way the guy can pay. And they know that. And so they say, let's get a priest. He'll take a look at the case and he'll go, yeah. I get it. You aren't able to, um, you're not able to pay. So we'll settle on something else. And I think that's a really nice, it, it, it shows us again um, the heart of God that poor people have just as much access to this as rich people. But even in the cost of redemption, okay, everyone has an opportunity to be redeemed. Okay? The poor, rich, slave, free, male, female, everyone has a, an opportunity. To, to, to get redeemed, even if you can't actually afford it. It's redeemed of our sin as well, redemption. Yes, that's right. So that's now we're just talking about the Peshat, but let's take it spiritually. Let's do the spiritual thing. Yeah, we're talking about redemption. Is that, uh, and who comes along and does the redeeming? It's not the person who's dedicated themselves. Okay? It's, the, it's, this, it's this other person. And not only that, he has to add value. Isn't that always interesting? So what's the value of this person? Add another 20% and I'll pay it. And you think, wow, you know, you're, you're not getting, why would you, you buy something that's worth more than it's, why are you paying something that, that, that's, that it's more, worth more? The guy's paying 20% more than what something's worth. But the guy does it. Why? Out of love, probably. Out of honor. Out of family out of duty and jesus does all of those yeah right he does it because he loves us he does it because he's honor bound to god has i will redeem you so i am bound to redeem you right uh he does it because of his name his, uh, his glory he does it for because of his father's glory um etc etc so there's a lot there in in its in its uh spiritual side which is a, a nice little talk on yeah on redemption no sin is too great. No sin is too great. Yeah. And yet there's that hint that there's something 
that we can't buy back. Now, what is it in the New Testament? What's the one sin that doesn't seem to be able to be bought back? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right. But we don't really know what that means. But it, it, it just, it just. What did Vita say? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes. Thank there you. seems to be something, and, and it's an obscure verse. Well, not obscure, we all know it. But it's a, it's a verse that we're not 100% sure what it means. Commentaries, full books are written. Um, you know, the, the sin that is not forgiven in this world and in the next. You know, uh, verses that you think, Lord, why would you say that? It's really confusing. But there is, this, there is this thing where it's already actually in the Torah. There is, you buy everything back, everything gets a, a price. You can buy it back, rich, poor, slave, free, male, female. But there is something that you can't. Every sin is forgiven, absolutely everything. I can cover absolutely every single sin except this one. Like, well, what is it? It's an um, uh, interesting, interesting thought, but it's there in Torah and it's reflected again in the New Testament. Uh, Janet? Yeah, I, I wonder if that's in our New Testament scripture as a very severe warning in the same way that in Leviticus you have this laid down that there's going to be something that you've got to be careful because if this happens and and is the other sin thing because if you're given a really really strong warning and then you intentionally do something you make that choice to do it I mean it's not it's not just um a slip of the tongue to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I see it as we're talking about it sort of more as a warning because you've got this warning in Leviticus that, you know, there's there's something that could happen that really is very serious. So avoid avoid doing this. Avoid same, doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a very pejorative it's I mean and and, and so I don't think we need to be afraid, but we need to recognize that we have to be very careful how we speak about the Holy Spirit, how we interact with the Holy Spirit. It's it's or 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 make some judgment about who the Holy Spirit is. Right. And that's that's how I take it. Yeah. We what's his name? Or what do we call him? Holy Spirit. And and sometimes, unfortunately, we say the word holy so often we forget what holy actually is. And uh, this whole book has been talking about. The, the ability to distinguish between sacred and profane against holy and unholy, you know, and make distinctions. And, um, uh, and, and, and we, we sometimes unfortunately become to a place where we lack the value of holiness, which is and to our detriment, I think. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Um, so looking at the text, the first couple of verses from uh, 1 to 8 describe the uh, different values that people have and then and then describes that people in poverty who are part of the story uh, can be valued by priests. It's quite arbitrary. The priest gets to decide. Um, this opens up two things. It opens up corruption. Priest might decide horribly. But what also does it open up? It opens up the ability for, for, you know, for an incredibly, really good blessing. Imagine you come to the priest you know, and say, look, my son has dedicated his house. I'm not quite sure what he was thinking. He's, he's, you know, he's a bit destitute. And the priest says, I got it. This house is valued at four cents. Yep, that's what the whole house valued four cents. And in fact, here's four cents. You should pay it. 
And, um, and those kinds of stories are actually still alive even to this day. So um, in, the, in the diocese where my canonical residence was uh, moved to, was uh, the Great Lakes, there was a uh, young deacon who was ordained, all fresh, all excited, wanted to go out and uh, share the gospel, save the world like they all do. So he decided that he, would, he got absolutely no money. Okay? Um, he was going to go and, um, and preach in the town square. So he goes and sets up a little table, sets up his little you know, bread and wine, and gets his prayer book out and starts having a service in broad daylight, in public, in the town square, in the garden, in the public garden. And people come and they walk past and they make fun of him and they ridicule him and the homeless people are there laughing at him and deriding him. And he does his little thing and says all his prayers. And uh, eventually he comes over to these guys and he says, listen, yell at me all you like. You know, laugh at me all you like. I get it. No problem. But just come and listen. Give me one. Let me have one sermon with you. And then if you want to yell, go for it. You know, I'm all yours. And he does his little thing. And he ends up creating a small community, a very small community, maybe 10, 15 people sitting inside this little garden. And uh, uh, across the street was a Ukrainian Orthodox church. Unfortunately, all the Ukrainians had left town by this state. So it was a pretty deserted little church. And the Ukrainian priest comes over and sits down one Sunday and listens to the guy give his little sermon and then stands up afterwards and says, I see that you don't have a church, um, but I really think you should probably have one. So why don't you use mine? Uh, it's just across the road. Um, and, the, and the guy says, OK, um, how much does it cost to rent? Because I really don't have any money. You know, my, my community is made up of completely poor people. You know, there's, there's nothing in the offering plate except a few cents every now and again. And he goes, no problem. Uh, it'll cost you ten dollars a uh, a week. That'll be your every Sunday. Give me ten dollars, and um, and and I'll make an offering. So he puts ten dollars in the offering plate. And every Sunday, this Greek Orthodox uh, Ukrainian Orthodox priest sits down and listens to the sermon. And at the end, gets up and puts ten dollars in the offering plate and walks out. And on Monday, comes and gets his ten dollars rent. And uh, so you can do this kind of stuff. You know, it, it sets up for the heart of the priest. Okay, the priest could be completely loving. You could look at this family and go, "My gosh, you know, you really wanted to dedicate this to the Lord." Okay, no problem. But um, he wants to buy it back, so I'll, I'll, I'll let him do that. And um, you can actually set up the true economy of the Lord. Now, things belong to the Lord. We're not saying that they don't. In fact, what Leviticus is also setting up is things actually belong to God. And we sometimes forget that. We sometimes forget that actually not only does he own everything, yes, God owns everything, but there are things that actually belong to the Lord. And one of those things is going to be mentioned later on in this, in this chapter, the tithe. So actually, why don't we jump to that now? Uh, so where's the tithe? The tithe is actually right at the end in verse 30. So we'll leap to that bit and then see where we go. So in verse 30, we get this thing called every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, that's the Lord's, is holy to the Lord. And if a man wants to redeem some of his tithe, you have to add a fifth to it. Right? And if the man, I don't know why you'd want to do such a thing, but you might want to. And every tithe of the herds, the flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff, that's holy to the Lord. 
and you will not differentiate between good or bad. Whether neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then he and the substitute are holy to the Lord. So don't even try. You know, there's this thing that's actually holy. And you get this number, the tithe. Uh, we've actually seen the word the tithe before. Anyone remember? Melchizedek. Yes, well done. Genesis 14. Yes, that's actually the first time we actually get the word tithe. And you scratch your head and you go, what is Abraham doing? You know, he gives a tithe uh, to Melchizedek. Nowhere in the Bible up until that point does it say you should. In fact, it's Leviticus here that mentions the word tithe. It's reiterated in Deuteronomy. It's a bit more fleshed out actually in Deuteronomy, okay, where you actually get up a, an idea of a second tithe. Um, so there's this one here, then, and which is reflected in Deuteronomy, and then in Deuteronomy there's a, there's a second tithe that pops up. But tithing actually occurs prior to the Torah. Now, isn't that an interesting thought? How many times have you guys been to church and someone says, oh, I don't tithe because that's, uh, that's uh, Old Testament? And you go, uh, yeah, but it's actually before, uh, before Mount Sinai. Thank you very much. Um, now, that's an interesting thought. And here it's reflecting that the tithe, this thing that occurred before the Torah, actually belongs to the Lord. So how, how do we know that? Is it, where was that written, the tithing, before the Torah? Okay. Excellent question, Kate. Uh, Genesis 14.20, which is, um, as Vida mentioned, is the incident between Abraham and Melchizedek. Uh, Abraham has defeated uh, five kings. Okay, he, he, he didn't want to go to war. That was never like he didn't wake up one day and think, I think it's going to fight people. That sounds like fun. Um, uh, they, he was actually going to rescue his nephew who had been captured and uh, he succeeds. And on his way back, he has this mysterious encounter with this person who is a king priest of El Elyon, the Lord Most High. Okay, it's, a di it, it's, a di it's the... The, the, the word for God, El Elyon, only occurs here and in the Psalms. You really don't use it to describe God anywhere else. Okay? Um, this man, obviously, is not Jewish because we haven't invented Jews yet. That's coming through the line of Abraham. Yet, he blesses God and he blesses Abraham. Actually, he blesses Abraham first, then God. That's always a rabbinical commentaries are full uh, just on that, just on that, way of working what was going on and he brings out bread and wine which is the reason why brothers and sisters when we have communion we do bread first wine second and not the normal jewish way which is wine first bread second okay because we as gentiles we are not replacing the priesthood of the cohen's and levites we are in the order of melchizedek it's a different order and uh, and so that's that's the reason why we're not a replacement. It's a different order. Those are two different things. Okay, and uh, and so on Shabbat you'll do uh, wine bread, but uh, at a communion service, if it's the order of Melchizedek, you'll do bread wine. And uh, and Abraham gives him a tithe, and it doesn't say why. It just sort of he, he gets the blessing and he gives a tithe out of all of this stuff. I mean, my gosh, you know, Melchizedek got a chunk of stuff. He just defeated five kings you know he's loaded with with with, with booty uh, and he gives and 
What is a tithe, I hear you ask? Well, where do we get the word ten from? It's actually because in the Hebrew, um, the ma'aser, uh, the word tithe, the shoresh, the root, is from the word eser, which means ten. And so that's where we get the idea that a tenth, uh, which, is, which is here, right? Every tenth animal. Right? So they already know that the word tithe is a one in ten thing, and uh, that, that actually belongs uh, to God. Now, some traditions actually do really do a very legitimate real tithe, uh, and, and some people don't. Um, let's be 100% honest. If the church actually tithed, actually tithed, there would be absolutely no financial problems in the kingdom of heaven, right? That is, that is the truth. Uh, uh, when you've got a hundred a congregation of 120 people and you can't seem to uh, afford a pastor, something is wrong. Right? Where uh, the community is uh, is really not being generous to the Lord. Now, what God is saying here in Leviticus is, "Hang on, a tenth is mine. It does not belong to you. So, hand it over." <laughs> uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thought. Okay, not, not many people like to, to preach on tithing. Um, it's not the done thing. You, you probably scare people out of your church. And that's actually really sad to say something like that. When really actually what should be happening is just be, hey, let's be challenged by this. Let's be challenged by living a holy life and understanding that, that actually God owns everything. He does. I'm going to even pretend. In fact, for those that want to come to tomorrow night's Bible study, Wednesday night, we're going to be challenged by Jesus in the gospel to really honestly lead a simple life, you know, where, where you know, Jesus is, you know, really going to say, honestly, man, uh, money means absolutely nothing. It's great. It's fantastic. It even reflects a blessing from the Lord, but you can't take any of it with you. And here's a parable just to prove the point. Um, okay. so. Uh, uh, I've got a bunch of hand raised. She'll go one at a time. So let's start with um, Vida. Quick question. Where it says a tithe of the land and of the seed of the land, because then it says it's holy to the Lord. Is that the first fruit? Because in the New Testament it says the first fruit is holy, then the, the lump is also holy. So is, is this tithe the first fruits Could of be. the land and the seed? You, you, you know, it might be, Vida. Deuteronomy fleshes it out a bit and describes what the first tithe is and then, and then there's a second tithe. But actually, you might be right. It could be that the first tithe is the first thing, the first fruit, the first thing that comes in from your harvest, split it up. Is a tithe. Is a tithe. And then there's this other act of generosity that comes, comes later. Could be. And then, of course, who else is the first fruit? We are. And so we have to make our uh, lives as Paul would say, a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to the Lord. Yvonne, Brazil. Yes, um, what, what you said, it's, it's, it's all the Lord's and, you know, the whole idea of the tithing. But I remember it was said maybe in the Deuteronomy study that there's no temple. So what, so that, that, that 10% would go to the temple. So what would be the temple today? If there would be that or 10% can just go to, to the Lord. And that could be through missionaries and, and um, could it be, the, could it be to the church or could it be outside of the physical building of a church? Um, so that was one question. And, um, and then if the whole, if all of us, 
<laughs> the word tithe, ten percent. Um, wow, right? But uh, Jacob, I don't think he ever did. And Betel, <laughs> when he was on his way, so he said, "I'll give you ten a tenth." I'm wondering. I don't think he ever really did that. Did um, so it's a couple of questions there. Um, let's note that much of what we call you know, the 613 laws, although there's actually 606, seven other laws of Noah, right? 613 laws. Um, many of them, A, have to be done in the land of Israel, so outside the land of Israel or not. Many of them revolve to a temple. When you haven't got a temple, there's a small problem. Some of them revolve to a jubilee, which is a problem because you actually don't have tribal allotments anymore. So it's very difficult to allot those back. Large sections of the commandments actually can't be done literally. So then, of course, we have to go to the next level. How can I actually do this in a non-literal way, but actually still practically? You know, this, this sort of exegesis, which is being done, and that creates this thing called halacha where we're trying to figure out how we can walk this out practically when we don't have a state or we don't have a temple or we don't have a land or we don't have a sacred calendar that we can follow as high as possible. So that's a good question. If I don't have a temple, who do I give my tithe to? And uh, what does that look like? And, and so then we create that discussion you know, on the high level. Do what is the Lord's? Well, everything's the Lord's. I get it. But do I give it to a church? Do I give it to a missionary? Do I give it to um, a good cause? Do I, you know, save the whales? Do I hug a tree? Do I, you know, what do I do <laughs> um, yeah, with, with, my, with my tithe? And, of course, obviously, we would all probably agree it starts in the heart, right, where everything starts. With, you know, wickedness comes to the heart, but so does your goodness. So you start there. And if your first reaction is, I don't want to give a tithe, well, then perhaps you probably have to have a serious thought, before you even go, where am I giving it? Why don't I want to do that? Um, and and that, that kind of stuff. Um, I remember just, just as a little bit of backstory, not that I always do that, but um, when I got my first legal job, yes, you heard that legal job uh, when I was 18, um, because I did some work on market gardens, cash in hand stuff, you know. Um, our first legal job, my dad, who did not always, um, wasn't, 100% heavily involved in every aspect of my life. But every now and again, when it was time for those highlights of, of childhood, dad showed up. Okay. And so I got the, he got a, a job, son. Okay. Here's the, here's the thought 10% goes to God. 10% you put in a jar and that goes to your retirement or whatever. And if you ever buy a motorbike, I'll chop it apart with an axe. That was the, <laughs> that was the, uh, the talk. I was like, okay. All right. Good. Okay. So I, um, yeah. You learn, you learn to put some aside for uh, a rainy day. You learn to give some to God. And the 80, other 80%, no, you do what you like. But, of course, okay, if you did some inappropriate stuff, Dad would come along and sort that out. <laughs> okay, Come and redeem, redeem the motorbike, um, which I never bought, by the way. I never bought a motorbike, just so everybody knows. So good on you, Dad. Yeah, I learned, I learned my lesson. Um, okay. But yeah, the, the tithe is there. And I, I, you know, the it's one of those things. You know, this is the only time we've we've been told to put God to the test, are we not? You know, and, and which book of the Bible does that come from? Do you remember? De Deuteronomy, where but there's two tests. It's scarcity and wealth when they go into the land. 
well, scarcity in the, in the wanderings in the desert. And then, so that's one test and then scarcity and then, and then abundance sure. coming yeah. into the land. So, yeah. yeah. And unfortunately in our abundance, we forget God, which is a small problem. That might be the greatest test actually. It could be actually, yeah. Now, isn't that interesting? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And I think that ha- highlights the proverb. There's a proverb, but I don't know if it's, is it 30, which says, um, don't make me rich that I forget you, O Lord, and don't make me poor so that I steal and dishonor your name. But just give me my breakfast. Paul had some of that, yeah. Yes. Um, it's in Malachi, guys. You know, the, it's in the prophet Malachi where God says, no, you test me in this. Okay, You give me mine first because it's mine, and you show me, uh, you watch me pour out abundance on, on the rest of you. Um, it's, uh, it's, but the tithe, the actual thing called a tithe is found before Mount Sinai and it's found between a Jew and a Gentile. Now, isn't that interesting? uh, God has always, always wanted Jews and Gentiles to walk together. We always remember that at the base of Mount Sinai, everyone who's hearing this, there's Jews and Gentiles present. We've just come out of Egypt. So the mixed multitude is still there. Right? They have not had the chance to do this mass conversion thing that's all become Jews. They're still working that out. Right. And uh, and so we've got we've got to, let's always remember that that there are Jews and Gentiles hearing this. And uh, and the, the idea of a of a tithe is actually pre-pre-Sinai, codified in Sinai. It's where God fleshes it out that says, okay, holy people, this is how we work this out. And um, and and, uh, and test me on this. Just yeah, you you put you you test me on this one, you know, and, and I'll show up to the party. All right, so Janet, we've got uh, Janet and then Teresa. Okay, this this really might be a long shot, but when we were talking about tenth, something came to my mind about the beginning of Isaiah, where Isaiah is, um, the Lord speaks to him, he's speaking to him about the message that he's going to have to give to the people, about you know what's what's coming down the pike. And in verse, it's it's Isaiah 6, verse 13. Okay. And he's, he's talking about, I think, the land and the people. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. So it comes right down to the holy seed being in the stump of the people. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it, it, the tenth represents a small portion, but it also represents, it, it represents something that remains, something that has an entity. And um, when you think, when we think of ten, we think of ten out of a hundred. Now, I don't know how they thought of tenth then, because they weren't necessarily on that kind of a system. But to me, it's it's there's something about ten that is really important to God. This tenth, this tithe, and it's almost like He's saying, you know, this is going to be such a terrible thing that I'm going to even take that tenth that's in the land. I'm going to take that tenth and I'm going to even take that down. Mm. The, you're right. The number 10 is incredibly important to God. What are some of the tens that jump out at you? Ten commands. Yeah, yeah. What else? The ten utterances. <laughs> the ten utterances, you know, that, that we actually, yeah, ten utterances. The ten spy. oh, sorry, the, uh, the ten bad spies. The ten, ten, ten righteous to save an entire entire. Uh, even wicked cities, the ten men for a congregation to to listen to a prayer. There's ten, 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 ten. ten. 
Ten plagues. Ten plagues. Yeah. Yes. So you're, ten, ten all cities. these things that come out in these numbers. And here again, it's like, well, actually, ten is so holy. The first ten. That's all mine. And, uh, Rocky, did, well, what, which ones did you say? Oh, the ten cities of, around Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, that's correct. That's right. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. There were others there. That is true. It was a, uh, a whole civilization. That was, uh, How many so. cities of refuge? 14, I don't remember. Yeah, there's actually more than, there's more than 10. <laughs> a different number. But th thanks for trying. <laughs> what I like about this verse is even when that 10th is totally destroyed, it's like there's this seed of the people that's going to remain, that God even if he takes away that whole thing, there's it's there's something left. He's, he's you know his his that what he has with the people of Israel is still going to be, um, you know he's he's going to keep that. He might yes, he might, and that highlights what we said. Forsaken is not the same as being punished. God will punish his people, but he will not forsake his people. Those are two different things, mm -hmm. and um, you know abandonment is not rejection. God might take his hand of protection away, but that doesn't mean he's rejected his people. And Paul has to say that, right, in Romans. Has God rejected his people? No. And you go, well, what are you talking about, no, Paul? Look, you know, look at them. They're dispersed all over the world. You know, they're under the control of the Romans. You know, they've got corruption in their, in their, uh, in their Sanhedrin. You talk about it all the time. Um, and, he, and Paul says, well, has God rejected them? No. You've got no idea how much God loves people. And uh, and if you don't know that yet, then let me have you. Let me give, let me talk to you a little bit more, because I really want to tell you how much God loves people, and uh, and uh, and he and he loves his people very much. Um, all right. So Teresa, you've got your hand raised. I've been a very patient. Yeah. <laughs> um, just on, on what Janet was saying, it's a remnant that's always left, isn't it? A remnant. But um, anyway, yes. To go back to the tithes. Um, Going back to Deuteronomy, where and when we were looking at that in the festivals, I'm thinking of Sukkot, where the warning was be very careful when you, you know, when you're sitting there with your in the midst of your plenty, obviously that's when it's been a good year. Yep. Then, you know, don't forget me and remember who gave it to you. Um, because I think that's that is such a huge temptation. And I think it is more of a trial actually than when you have little, because it seems to me. And I'm I'm not a great expert on this, but it does seem as if people who have very little tend to be, as far as I know, more more generous, more somehow. I think maybe it's because what you own becomes so much more valuable to you because that's all you have. I don't know. I, I haven't thought about the psychology of it, but that is true, isn't it? That um, when you get a lot you get tied up in the blessing of all, oh, you know, you've got this and you don't have to worry if you're very fortunate, how much something costs because you can get it within reason. And then you forget where it comes from. And, and then it becomes harder to give. I think it, things become harder to give because somehow, you know, you've got them and you hold on to them and it's a wrong attitude to things, I know. Or well, when you've got little, you sometimes do understand how much a little can mean. Yes. So if you if you only need 10, 10 pounds or ten dollars or whatever it is for a meal, and you haven't got it, somebody who's got everything won't understand that difference between being hungry and being fed. 
that the less you know, sometimes the more you understand. The point is, we should be trying to understand yes. if we when we are in positions of having. Um, yes. And the, the the other thing is, it's about it. I know that you said it in a way, but just reiterating that the tithe is like the the minimum you do. It's like yes, you have to do that, but actually, actually, it's not the only thing, and we have to be generous above that because at the end of the day everything we have comes from god and it's not ours really to just use liberally without actually seeking where we can seeking god on it you know and i know we don't always get those things right but ideally that's what we should be doing what shall i do lord how shall i use this yep uh, thank you for that god likes a cheerful giver we've all heard those expressions and all of that is true but how do we make ourselves the cheerful giver so that when we actually are giving, we actually do so in a cheerful spirit? That's a, that's a good, it's a, it's a test for us. It's, a, it's not always easy. You know? um, uh, there are times when, when, when giving is, is hard for us because we're, we're out of our comfort zone. We're not 100% sure we're going to be able to pay our bill next week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, I was with um, some volunteers. Uh, in front of a big um, picture of the the division of the land of the 12 tribes. And, you know, I asked them, so what do you see on the picture? And there's different colours and there's different names and there's different sizes. And uh, and not everybody's given the same thing. And that's, that's, that's the first thing, is that uh, when God divvied up the land, he didn't say everyone gets exactly the same. Now, that's not the same as being equal before the Lord. That's our problem. So, sometimes we equate equality before the Lord with equality of stuff. And, um, and so uh, we, we sort of kind of think, of, you know, the Bible is a giant book on socialism and we'll all just all have exactly the same stuff because God takes us all exactly the same. That's actually not true at all. What God wants is he says, look, everybody gets. Now, some get more, some get less. But what I want is I, I want you to look after the poor. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to say, okay, you know, but it's going to come from a spirit of generosity. The government isn't going to force you and take your money and give to the poor. I want you to do it. I want the poor to be looked after by your heart. By you. They'll actually get taken care of, but they'll do so through your just inbuilt generosity. And, uh, and so, you know, part of the calling of Leviticus is to be like the Lord, is it not? Yes. And so if we know that God wants to look after the poor, then we should do the same and it should just, just flow. It's hard, but it comes from a spirit. It comes from uh, 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 a relationship with God. Where you are allowing him to mold and shape our hearts to look like his, etc., etc., and uh, and then and here we have this thing called yeah the tithe, and uh, and it and it's it God just says it's mine, but it's in the same chapter where everything's voluntary. Now, why was that? Why don't we just shove it in where you know do this, I'll kill you. Uh, you know, uh, desecrate the Sabbath, you're dead. Uh, oh, by the way, 10, 10% goes to God. You know, you could, you could put it in, a, in an area where all the laws are pretty strict. No, the tithe appears in, in a chapter where it's all voluntary. And, um, and so there's this tension between um, 
I, this is mine. So would you give it, please? I'm not going to force you to, but you really, really should. And uh, and so there's this, there's this element of um, uh, I don't really know how the, to just get the words to wrap around it, but I'll try during the week to try and type it out in a in a nice way. Um, is that oh, there's a good one. Uh, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Okay? It's a it's an attitude of generosity, and um, the 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 people of God would be um, uh, better for it. And the, the missions would be sustained and we would have, you know, covered everything that we, all our debts would be paid. Um, and plus, if that was the economy of the church, that would also be attractive to people. Right? Why, do people why do people run to a kibbutz in the 1960s, 1970s? Because it was attractive. You know, it was like the world was horrible, but here was a community where they shared everything. It was all fantastic. You know, we would go Acts chapter 2. But you know, it was actually real. You know, uh, in you know, in, and so people went from all over the world, right, to go and live and work on a kibbutz. Okay, the kibbutz movement suffered the same fate as the rest of human nature: <laughs> greed, and everybody wanted to be house and wanted to get a job, and and so most of the kibbutz seem turned into what they call the moshav, which is more of a collective, still making money, but makes money that generates income for for their people. Uh, as opposed to a kibbutz, which spreads the wealth around. There are a few kibbutzim still in Israel, not many. Um, but uh, but it, it's attractive. And this would actually be an attractive part of the kingdom too. Remember when Moses stands before the people of Israel, he says, no other nation's got a Torah like you. No other nation has wisdom like this, where uh, their, their society is built on morality, on taking care of everybody, of people being generous, of people understanding that actually blessings come from the Lord, material possessions are, they're great, but they don't actually belong to us, they come and they go, we should use them for all the right things, um, and that should be the, the model that we uh, present to the world, uh, and Moses said that other nations, they'll come, they'll want to know, is this actually true? You guys actually doing this? No. Um, and uh, and some did, right? You know, Queen of Sheba came and visit Solomon and say, oh, my gosh, your people are incredibly wise. Allow me to give you even more stuff. Um, and, uh, and so it, it can, be, can be quite attractive. All right. Are there any other questions? Oh, let's, let's do one more topic on, um, on, uh, on, on the spiritual side. So there is the practical side. Let's also talk about the spiritual side, which we always hinted upon. Thanks to Vida, who always uh, reminds us that it's Jesus, 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 which it is the Redeemer. Okay, this there is this action of the redemption, and the Redeemer comes in and he buys up uh, all the people. We've got that spiritual side. What is our name? What do we call ourselves? We are Christians. What does that actually mean? Anyone know what the real little what? Belonging to Christ. Belonging, little Christ's anointing from the anointing, little Christ's little messiahs, and so our function is to act like the Messiah. And what does Paul say? We have become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians five. Now that is an incredible statement. Oh, yeah. How dare you say such a thing, Paul? My righteousness is you know filthy rags. He says no. You are part of the redemptive plan. And so we have to be a part of that action of uh, buying people back, right? And they cost more than they're worth. Now, isn't that an interesting thought? 
okay, is that when we're doing about the action of redeeming people, it's going to cost us more than we actually get back. We're going to pay more, and that's okay. We have to, we have to, we have to get to that part of our lives to say, not a problem. You've done it. You've paid more than I'm worth. Absolutely, I get it, and I, I, I will do so too. It's hard. It's not easy. I'm not going to say that it isn't, but it's uh, one of our callings. One of our callings is to act as the redeemer um, and buy back that which is lost. It will cost more than it will ever come back to us, and that's okay. And uh, uh, and and that's the the heart heart of the Lord. We can't pay back to God what He's paid for us. And we should never expect someone to do that for us either. When we're involved in the work of the kingdom here, we should never expect someone to give us back something. It's got to, it's got to be, no, actually, I've paid more, and, um, and that's okay. Uh, and uh, and that, that's the heart, the heart of the Lord. It's part of our calling, friends. It's part of our calling. It's a great calling. The ability to distinguish the sacred from the profane, the ability to to acknowledge we're part of a holy people, the ability to uh, to to give and, and just keep on giving, and the, and the ability to know that actually it's the Lord who redeems everybody ultimately, and I get to be a part of it um, as, as well. Um, great calling. Yeah. Any other thoughts, friends, on this quite incredible little book? It truly is the heart of, 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 of God. It's often not read, which is a, a, a great disappointment, probably isn't studied the way it probably should. It, it, it truly does give us a glimmer, a glimpse into the, the heart of the Lord, how he loves his creation, what he wants his creation to look like, how he wants his economy to work, and, uh, and our role in it as part of the people of God. Uh, it has multiple levels, like all exegesis, a very practical, literal level, but it also has a, a, a very high and deep spiritual component to it, which also then goes back into a practical level, right? We don't just sit in the clouds with Jesus. We actually go around and physically love people, um, and, uh, and that's a good thing. All right. Uh, Teresa, you have a comment? Uh, yeah, I have found... With many Christians, if you if I say, oh, I'm studying Leviticus or I love Leviticus, they look at me in horror. <laughs> and um, no, well, they really do. Honestly, yeah. how could you do that? I mean, obviously, they see it as boring. That goes without saying. But also this this is just about the law and it's not relevant to us anymore anyway, because that's the Old Testament. <laughs> I mean, they honestly still say it. And now we have the new and, and that's the old you know, it's almost like it's a different God because we don't have to bother with that now because we've got Jesus. And it's very, very strong. Or oh, I have encountered it very strong among people. And that takes a bit of time to shift. I think they just go on thinking, I'm, you know, I'm past it. I'm, I'm you know, stupid. But anyway, there we go. Way out. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that, that the people that have listened to us, that have joined us online, hopefully have uh, been able to share some of, some of the, our, our delight and to learn about the holiness of God and turn around and go, actually, guys, I'm studying Leviticus. Incredible book. There's way more in it than I ever thought. And, uh, and, and it's actually a, a, like the Torah is the basis for everything else. Leviticus is like you know, a central key. And that chapter 19 in that caistic structure, that is uh, an amazing set uh, of revelations of the heart of God. And, uh, yeah, and, and a lot of the New Testament just revolves around 
acting out this, this, uh, these laws. Okay, so Andrew has a comment. Vaikra starts and ends with bringing an offering. What a wonderful study. Yeah, actually, that's an interesting thought. It's true. You, we begin Vaikra by bringing an offering to the Lord, and we end with a free will, non-prescribed offering, but also a, a tithe and a redemption story. That actually actually goes through the whole book. Very nicely said, Andrew. Thank you. Uh, uh, Kate, did you have a hand raised? or? I, I did, but you said it. And oh, it was okay. literally, I mean, there's a lot that I'm learning and a lot still to learn. But it's been so surprising that a lot of the New Testament, um, when I'm reading it or studying it or trying to understand it, I can relate it back to Leviticus. It, 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 it opens up new things to think about. Even yeah. if you don't fully understand it, it, it leads you into another way of thinking. Yeah. And the whole of the, the fact that um, this is the first um, book we were told that the, the Jews, when they're learning, they study Leviticus. I can see why. It's the basis of so much that follows. I can understand that. So thank you very much for your teaching. Right. Hallelujah. All right, friends. Thanks for listening, and uh, it's been a delight, absolutely fantastic book. Be blessed, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.